So my granddaughter calls this time of year the spooky season. And, and I mean, I get it, right? Because I can imagine if you're five years old, the, all the costumes and decorations and things on TV can, can be a bit scary. Now, of course, as adults, or at least for me, I, I'm no longer scared by ghosts and goblins and things that go bump in the night. I find the reality of daily life to be plenty scary enough all on its own, right? I turn on the news, I pick up the paper, I scroll through Facebook, and there's a lot to be afraid of. You know, the threat of nuclear war, uh, um, viruses that are multiplying, social and political unrest, inflation, all of the, it feels like to me it's the spooky season all year long. And so sometimes it can cause us as adults to, to think of the supernatural as just a bunch of made up hocus pocus. But you know, for us as Christ followers, guess what? Our faith is a supernatural faith. I mean, yes, we live out our faith in the reality of the natural world, but our lives and our world are impacted and influenced by a very real supernatural world. And so because of that, I want us to spend the next four weeks together as a church family just exploring some of the stranger things about our faith. Things like angels and demons and Satan and the, the Holy Spirit, these things that if we kind of step back and take a look at it are, are really pretty weird, right? I mean, I know if you've been in church most of your life, you've, you've kind of normalized talking about those things, but if you're new to church or you're kind of skeptical, you're like, what, what is all that weird stuff about? So I want us to spend some time really talking about this aspect of our faith, a, a part of our faith that sometimes in our modern lives and our scientific breakthroughs, we kind of gloss over. Now, obviously, because this is a difficult, confusing, and can be a very controversial topic, even within the church, I, I want us to establish some ground rules for this series. We're, we're going to take a three-pronged approach to talking about the supernatural. First, we're going to take a biblical approach to the supernatural. We're gonna just stay focused on what the Bible says, not what we you know, see on TV or read in so-and-so's book or heard this preacher talk about this, because I am amazed, really. I'm amazed at the number of us as Christians who develop our beliefs about the supernatural based more on movies and TVs and books than we do God's Word. So we're going to stay on a biblical approach to this topic. Secondly, we're going to take a balanced approach to the topic of supernatural. Because the thing about supernatural topics in the Bible, it can be real easy to kind of slide to one extreme or the other. In fact, C.S. Lewis, the great writer and thinker of the 20th century, said the two most common mistakes that Christians make when it comes to the supernatural is either an overemphasis in it or an under 
emphasis in it, right? Sometimes you can overemphasize the supernatural. You know, your car breaks down and you're like, I'm under demonic attack. It's this enemy's coming out. It's the demon of the car engine. Well, maybe it is, but maybe it's just because you haven't changed your oil in 50,000 miles. I don't know, but that's kind of a, you know, you see a, a demon behind every bad thing and a miraculous angel intervention behind every good thing. Of course, the other extreme is an under emphasis of the supernatural. You look at the things you read about in the Bible that are supernatural and think, well, you know, that's just how the ancient writers in a pre-enlightenment mindset, that's how they explain things, you know, that they couldn't understand or that science would one day explain it. And so you're like, yeah, that's kind of not really real. So we want to take a balanced approach to this topic. And then our third ground rule, and this is the most important, we're going to take a practical approach to the supernatural natural, because it can be very easy to get caught. This is a very um, curiosity-invoking topic, right? If you don't believe me, look at how many books are written about the end times and about angels. and We're just drawn into this topic, maybe because it's mysterious or whatever. And so we can get so focused on trying to figure out the supernatural and how it all works that we can forget that it is meant to help us live out our faith in the very practical reality of our daily lives. Now, hopefully over the next four weeks, we're probably gonna answer some questions that you have about these topics, but, but our goal is not to try to figure out how many angels can dance on the head of a pen. But it might be a good thing to know how angels move and work in the kingdom of God and what impact they have on my life. So a biblical, balanced, practical approach to this topic. Does that make sense? Kind of see where we're going, what our guardrails are? All right, great. So today I kind of wanted to kick things off with what at least I consider sort of the primary uh, supernatural aspect of our faith. And it's this topic called spiritual warfare. Now, I know some of you, maybe you're familiar, you've heard that term before, spiritual warfare. Some of you are like, what in the world are you talking about? What kind of spiritual warfare? Well, spiritual warfare is simply this idea that there is an unseen battle that is taking place in the supernatural world that tends to impact and influence our natural world. That's what we're talking about, this battle in the supernatural, the unseen world that has a way of moving and working and influencing our natural world. And probably the best description on this whole topic of supernatural comes from the New Testament book of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter six. And so if you've got a Bible, or a Bible app, you can turn or click there. That's where we're gonna be drilling down and hanging out. If not, it's okay. You can access the message notes online, right? Just go to notes.cedarcreekchurch.net or just open up your Cedar Creek Church app and you'll see the key verses there. But Paul begins this section of Ephesians by kind of defining for us this concept of spiritual warfare. Notice what he says in verse 12. He says, for we are not fighting against flesh and blood enemies, right? We're not fighting against people, against other human beings, but we're fighting against evil rulers and authorities in Washington, D.C. 
It's not what it says. It says we are fighting against rulers and authorities of the what? The, I'm sorry, the what? All right, stay with the unseen world against mighty powers in this dark world and against evil spirits in the heavenly places. What does all that mean? It means that sometimes there's more to your struggles than just what meets the eye. Sometimes there's more to the conflicts in your life than just the people and circumstances that are involved in that conflict. Sometimes there's more to your faith journey than just your internal struggle with your sin nature. There's a very real battle taking place between the kingdom of light and the kingdom of darkness. And as Christ followers, we are engaged in that battle, whether we see it and believe it or not. We are a part of this battle taking place in the unseen world, and it impacts the seen reality of our daily lives. That's spiritual warfare. And so as we look at this topic, I want to do two things. One, I want to look at two basic foundational truths about spiritual warfare, and then I want to look at our role in this battle, how we are to fight this spiritual battle in the unseen world. Because when you think about this kingdom of darkness, this battle, this war going on in the unseen world, when you think about how powerful and influential our enemy is in this world, in our culture, in our nation, in our families, and in our schools, it can become easy to get fearful and to feel intimidated about what is going on in the world around us. So the first truth I want you to ground yourself in about spiritual warfare is this. We fight from victory, not for victory. As followers of Jesus, we fight from victory, not for victory. The outcome's already been decided. God wins. I've read to the end of the book. And as his followers, he wins. And we win because he wins. I know it doesn't look like it today. I know every time you look at our country, the world, look around the news, evil is winning. That's what it looks like today, but that's not the truth. The truth is God wins, and we fight from a posture of victory, not for victory. I love the way John puts it in 1 John 5, 4. He says, for every child of God defeats this evil world. And we achieve this victory by the midterm elections this month. It's not, we achieve this victory by political activism, right? We, we achieve this victory by protesting all the bad stuff in the world. No, what does he say? We achieve this victory through our what? Our faith. As Christ followers, simply look to the cross and know Satan and evil was defeated in that moment, the heel of the, the head of the serpent was crushed by the heel of the king of kings. We fight from victory, not 
for. I know sometimes you have this idea about spiritual warfare and the kingdom of dark and light. You see it like a yin and yang thing, like two equal and opposite forces going at each other. That is not what this war is about. God has no equal. God has no rival. God is omnipotent. Satan is not. God is the creator. Satan is a created being, and he is a beaten, defeated foe. People will ask me, people will ask me, Philip, do you think Satan knows that he's defeated, right? Do you think he knows he's fighting a losing battle? I don't know. He's fighting like he thinks he can win, though. I do know that. And I was thinking about that this week. Our nation's civil war ended on April 9th, 1865, when General Robert E. Lee surrendered at Appomattox Courthouse. But did you know for the next couple of months after the surrender by the Confederate forces that there were six major battles that took place after the war was declared over. And do you know that the rebel forces won some of those battles against the Union forces, even though the war was already over? What I'm saying is when you're in the fight, it is real. The pain is real. The struggle is real, just like it was for those Union soldiers, even though the victory had been won. You are in a fight. And it is a difficult fight and it is a painful struggle, but you're not fighting for victory. Your victory's already been won. Whatever your battle is today, whatever struggle you're wrestling with, it just seems like it's overwhelming you. Look to the cross and remember, you win. He wins. That's why Paul said, for me to live as Christ, to die is gain. That's what he was talking about. Heads I win, tails I win. We fight from victory, not for it. Number two, the second critical truth, don't miss this, you are not fighting alone. You are not fighting alone. And I know that is good news for some of us because many of us are in battles that are way bigger than ourselves. You're in a struggle right now that you know you're not strong enough to win it, and some days you don't even have the strength to keep fighting it. But the good news is you don't fight alone. There's an incredible picture of this in the Old Testament book of 2 Kings chapter 6. If you ever get a chance to go read this, do it. But here's the Reader's Digest. The, the armies of the nation of Israel are in a war with the armies of the king of the Armenians. So it's the Israelites and the Armenians. And the Israelites are kicking tail and taking names. I mean, they are winning. They're like always one step ahead of the Armenians. In fact, it gets so bad that the Armenian king calls his officers together and says, guys, we've got a mole in the ranks. We've got a rat. It is obvious somebody is telling the Israelites what, what our plan is, because it's like they know what we're gonna do before before we do it. And one of the officers raised his hand and said, King, it's not one of us. It's this dude named Elisha, this prophet of God. And I'm telling you, King, somehow he is in your head. He knows what you're thinking before you even think it. And he tells the king of Israel, and they're always one step ahead of us. And the Armenian king said, we got to take this dude out. 
So he takes all his army, he pulls them off the battlefield, and he sends them all across the countryside to track down this one man named Elisha. And they catch up with Elisha, and unfortunately, Elisha is not with his military escort. It's just him and his skinny little servant boy. It's just the two of them in this town of Dothan. And so they find out he's there, and the Armenians surround the city of Dothan with thousands of horses and chariots and soldiers during the night. They've got him trapped. They've got him encircled. The next morning when the sun comes up, Elisha's servant walks out of the house, looks up, and is like, holy crud. We are in trouble. He goes running back in. He's like, EJ, it's bad, man. There's troops out there. They've got us. And EJ, Elijah's like, chill out, dude. We're good. We're covered. He's like, what are you talking about? There's a thousand of them. There's two of us. I'm a servant. I don't know how to fight. You're a prophet of God, not a ninja. We're way outnumbered. And I love what happens. Notice verse 17. It says, then Elisha prayed, Lord, open his eyes and let him see. And the Lord opened the young man's eyes. And when he looked up, he saw that the hillside around Elisha was filled with horses and chariots of fire. Isn't that amazing? God allows this servant to have a glimpse into the unseen reality that God's army was way more powerful. There weren't two guys alone and trapped. They had angel armies of God. And that's my prayer. Whatever battle, whatever struggle you are in right now that is overwhelming you, that somehow, someway God would open your eyes so that you could see and know that greater is he who is in you than he that is in this world. As believers, we fight from victory and we don't fight alone. But here's the question then what do we do? Do we just sit back and go, God, hit them with the angel armies, get some chariots of fire, you know, I'll be over here in my recliner with my Cheetos, just knock them out, Lord? No. We are to engage in this battle. We are to fight the good fight. So how do we do that? I'm glad you asked. Because Paul unpacks for us what it means for us to fight this good fight. And the first thing we have to do is we have to, we have to recognize our role in the battle. Recognize that you do have a role. The apostle Paul one day is writing to a small group of Christians in the ancient city of Corinth. And, and this city was as dark and as evil as you could imagine. You think it's bad now? in our country. I'm telling you, first century Corinth made American culture today look like back in the 1950s. This was a dark, difficult place for this small little group of Christians. And I, I love what Paul says to them, 2 Corinthians 10. He said, church, we do live in the world, but we do not fight in the same way the world fights. We fight with weapons that are different from those the world uses. And then don't miss this. Our weapons have power from who? Power from who? Power from who? It's God's power. It's not our abilities. Don't try to fight this thing in your own strength with your own wisdom. Fight with the weapons that God 
has given us. And if you jump back over to Ephesians chapter 6, Paul makes us a wonderful list of the three key weapons with which we fight this good fight. Number one, the first thing I have to do to fight the good fight is you got to protect yourself with the armor of God. You have to protect yourself with the armor of God. If you know anything about first century Roman military, their armor was protective. It was their defensive weapon. So Paul says the first place you start to fight this good fight is with a good defense. You got to start with a good defense. What's that old saying? Defense wins championships. Do you know why? Because if you cannot defend yourself, you cannot move forward. If you cannot defend yourself, you will not be able to help others move forward. That's why Jesus said the blind cannot lead the blind. Paul says the first thing you got to do is start with strengthening your life, your heart. And he says you do that by putting on the armor of God. Notice the first part of verse 13. Paul says, therefore, put on the full armor of God. Key phrase, put on. What does that mean? It means that the armor of God is not automatic. That when you became a believer, yes, God put his Holy Spirit in you, but he does not automatically put his armor on you. There are some intentional things you must do to put on the armor of God. So what is this armor? Well, Paul lists five things that make up this defensive armor of God, beginning with verse 14. Paul says, put on the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. Take up the shield of faith and put on the helmet of salvation. Now look, we don't have time this morning to dig into what all of those things are. I really hope you'll spend some time in your home group this week digging into what those different pieces of armor are. But there's two things I want you to notice about this armor. One, it comes from God. All five things that Paul lists are from God. He says, put on the belt of truth. Where does truth come from? Not from us. It comes from God. The breastplate of righteousness. Whose righteousness? Not ours. The Bible says our most righteous good deeds are filthy rags. It's the righteousness of God. The gospel of peace is the gospel about what we do for God or what God has done for us, right? It's God's gospel. Even our faith, the shield of faith, God has to give us the strength and the ability to have faith. The helmet of salvation Salvation is about what God has done for us. It is from God. The other thing I don't want you to miss, all of this armor is frontward facing. All of this armor protects the front. There's not one thing in there that is mentioned that protects your backside. And you're like, well, what, Lord, you got me, you know, hanging out back here. How am I supposed to be protected if my armor is only in the front? Here's why, because you were never meant to fight alone. We are to be connected with each other. Roman military worked as a team. And when they were not working as a team, their whole backside was vulnerable. And so is yours. 
It reminds me of that uh, part of history with King Leonidas and the 300 Spartans who were able to hold off hundreds of thousands of Persians. Why? Because they fought together. They linked their shields together. They were better together, and so are you. The, the Bible says our enemy, Satan, prowls around like a lion, seeking those he can devour. You know how a lion hunts? He separates the individuals from the herd. He cuts them off and makes them weak and vulnerable. Please, don't let the enemy isolate you. I know COVID changed everything and, and we think we can do everything virtually, but I'm telling you, you can't fight this battle watching a screen. You need to link arms with other believers in a small group. Those of you that are watching online, I love you. I'm glad you're here. But if you're watching for convenience, you are vulnerable. And I'm not talking about coming to a big worship service. I'm just talking about connecting with others in a small group because I, I have seen firsthand over and over and over what the enemy can do to those who are isolated. Don't fight alone. Put on the armor of God, but link with others. That's the only way your armor works. Number two, the second thing Paul tells us about fighting the good fight is that we move forward with the word of God. We move forward with the word of God. While the armor of God is defensive, the word of God is offensive. It is our offensive weapon. It is the only weapon in the first century Roman military that was used to uh, attack, to not just defend, but to move forward. And Paul calls that God's word. Look at verse 17. Paul says, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Paul's intentional with that analogy. He wants us to understand is that God's word is how we fight back against the enemy, right? Isn't that what Jesus did when he was tempted in the wilderness after 40 days, right? Everything Satan brought at him, he pulled out his sword, the word of God, and he attacked back with the truth of God. This is how we move forward, but it's also, it's also how we know where to go. That's why David said, your word, Lord, is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. It helps me know what the next step is. It helps me fight back against the enemy. Because let me tell you something, deception is Satan's greatest weapon. He's called the father of lies for a reason. He has a way of making right seem wrong and wrong seem right. And if you're not in here, if you're not filtering your choices and decisions and next steps through the truth of God's word, you too, I don't care if you've been following Jesus for 50 years, you too can be deceived by the enemy. 
I see it happening among believers and churches everywhere I look. That's why week after week, I beg you, engage with God's word. Spend time in it, memorize it, get to know it, not just to be informed, but to be transformed. It ain't gonna do you a bit of good to know everything you can know about the sword. You know, when it was invented, who made it, how it looks, how it works. It only helps you when you put it into play, right? Move forward with the word of God. And then finally, number three, and maybe most importantly, the only way we fight the good fight is to unleash the power of prayer. To unleash the power of prayer prayer. I'm telling you, I believe with all my heart and I've experienced with my journey with Jesus that I think prayer might be our most powerful weapon against the enemy. I think Paul believed that too, because look at what he writes in verse 18. He says, and pray in the spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. And with this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. Two things I don't want you to miss. Paul says, pray on all occasions. I know sometimes you get the idea that God doesn't really have time for your little problems. Like he's dealing with the Ukraine and the economy and the whole world. He doesn't really care about my mortgage or my relationship with my kid. These things, you think they're too little to pray about, but here's what I know. If you don't pray about those little things, they will very quickly become big things. Seen it happen in my life. So pray constantly on all occasions. And then secondly, Paul says, make sure you pray for each other. Do you do that? Do you pray by name for the people God has brought in your life, the people that you're connected to, your family, your home group members, your pastors, your leaders, your staff members? Do do you pray regularly for them? You need to. I'll just, in all transparency, uh, early on in my journey as a pastor, I, uh, you guys probably don't realize this, but somehow people have become convinced that when a person becomes a pastor, they get like a magic prayer language or their, you know, their own hotline, you know, the red phone direct to God. So they, you know, they have their whole home group praying for them. They got the whole prayer team. They got about a thousand people on Facebook praying for them. They always say, but Phil, I know you got some connections. I want you to pray for me. And I'm like, yeah, absolutely, I'll pray for you. But here's the truth. I would intend to pray for them But then, you know, I move on, life gets busy, and I forget all about it. And so what I started trying to do is be intentional. If somebody asks me to pray about something, if I'm able, if we're in that moment, I'm like, let's just do it right now. Let's just do it right now. And if I can, I try to write it down, take a note. Yes, we are to pray for each other. And I'll pray for you. But are you reaching out to God? Is God gonna hear your prayers? Because where is the condition of your heart? Now, I know some of you saying, Philip, I hear you, brother, but I've been praying and ain't nothing happening. I've been praying about this situation, this relationship, this struggle. I'm praying day in and day out. I got others praying for me and nothing. It's like my prayers don't even reach the ceiling. Listen, if that's you, I believe God supernaturally brought you here today to encourage you with this amazing event that takes place in the Old Testament book of Daniel. 
In Daniel chapter 10, go read it sometime. But Daniel, you know Daniel, the lion's den dude who's in, you know, exiled, who's trying to stand up for the Lord. Well, he's going through a hard time and he's begging God. He begs God to show up and move and either change the circumstances or change him. 21 days in a row, he is in a constant state of prayer and not one thing changes. In fact, Daniel doesn't get stronger, he gets weaker. But on that 21st day, an angel of God, a mighty powerful angel of God shows up and do you know what he says to Daniel? He says, Daniel, the moment you cried out to God, God sent me on your behalf. And I've been fighting another battle in the unseen world that you know nothing about, but I've been fighting. What I'm telling you, you may not see God moving, but the moment you're praying with a sincere heart and in line with God's word, he is moving and working. You may not be able to see it. He is fighting battles for you that you don't even know you're in. So keep praying. Keep trusting. And just keep getting up and taking another step each day. That's what we're called to do. And I believe, church, we are called to get off our self-righteous, religious, self-focused backsides and get out there and punch some holes in the darkness. There are hurting, broken people. I see it every day. And they are oppressed and overwhelmed by a darkness and an evil that we can't deal with. Our government can't deal with it. Our health care, our mental health care, our social services can't handle it. But the kingdom of God is called to the darkness in prayer and putting on the armor and caring enough to be a part of the kingdom of God. Instead of just posting on Facebook how evil and dark the world is, get out there and bring light to it wherever God leads you tomorrow. That is the call. That's the spiritual warfare, and that's the battle we're called to fight. And I am honored, honored to lead you and lead this church for the kingdom of God and for his glory and power and his victory. Father, I thank you for these amazing people who have a 30-year history of faithful service, of being a, a light in the darkness, hope to the hopeless, of being a safe place where people don't have to pretend like they've got it all together, where people don't have to live isolated. But Father, we must honestly confess that we've been complacent. We've kind of drifted into the rut of we just, you know, keep showing up and me, my four, no more. And, you know, I'm good, we're good. Or I'm so overwhelmed with life itself. I can't help anybody else. And Father, we ask for your forgiveness for that. And we ask that you would pour out your spirit in a supernatural way that not one person in here or one person in our community won't be able to look and go, that's a God-sized thing. That is God moving and working. It ain't about a cool church. It ain't about anybody else's name, but the name of Jesus. And we lift up that name 
and we charge hell with a water pistol because we know we fight from victory, not for it. So lead us, Lord, into this war. Help us fight the good fight to the very, very end when we can hear you say, well done, good and faithful servant. We love you, Jesus. We need you to move among us right now. It's in your name we pray. Amen.